0: Hello and welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's Talking Africa program. Talking Africa provides in-depth interviews with experts and other actors in the field of peace and security in Africa.
1: Hello, I'm Desmond Davis. In today's program, I will be discussing how social media is shaping the communication between governments and citizens, with special emphasis on Kenya. My guest are Shiko Kihika from Tribeless Youth. Which was established in 2016 to promote peaceful coexistence among young Kenyans, and Joe Kabuti of the Elephant, a digital publication on African issues based in Kenya. Shiko, I think your uh, organization is very, very apt in this day and age, and not just in Kenya, but in Africa, where ethnicity uh, seems to be taking hold again. So how do you yourself see your tribeless youth and how are you going to move forward with that
2: um thank you desmond i think if i got you right tribeless youth or rather the initiative itself started from a group of young people who are hopeless unemployed um not looking forward to anything politically who felt like they needed a space to vent a space to highlight the issues that are affecting them And I think this is what we're facing today. We have a sect of very vibrant young people, but very disenfranchised. Most of them are hopeless. Most of them don't understand what is playing in day-to-day politics. And I will say the tribe that we all belong as young people is the hopeless, jobless, and um, vulnerable, just to say. So, and this cuts across Africa. We've seen, even in our politics, day-to-day politics is that, democracy dictates the older gets positioned and the young people stay to serve the older. I think that is the current democracy that as Africans we're facing. So where we find that power is retained in a certain age group of people and young people don't necessarily get to participate and become a uh, part of the process. So for us, and I think this is relatable to different parts of Africa, is that young people have a voice, young people understand what they need to do. They just don't have the spaces to express that. And I think this is what we are doing as Tribeless Youth, uh, claiming spaces that belong to us, to participate politically, but also engage democratically and claim our spaces.
1: Joe, I mean, are you also the uh, same wavelength? I mean, trying to uh, articulate uh, the issues relating to young people?
3: Certainly, I mean, we came into this space in 2016, uh, knowing that uh, interpretation in, in Kenya is 80% is 80% because of mobile usage. So knowing that uh, you, you realize that uh, older channels, traditional forms of communication, particularly mainstream media, uh, one, either have been corrupted by uh, status quo or are owned by politicians uh, therefore uh, inf- in passing information to younger young audiences who, who asking deeper questions uh, previously was becoming impossible so I think uh, moving to the, to the digital space provided for an opportunity for different voices marginalized voices to start articulating, articulating a different way of doing politics so the, the elephant was just was such a platform that is able to occupy that space and communicate directly to this younger generation who are now, you know, uh, who are now Because K- Kenya, Kenya's unique digital infrastructure uh, within the region, uh, provide for an opportunity for that. Uh, we saw that we saw MPESA previously, but now since having now 90% more web penetration, uh, youth are able to access our content through through their mobiles, which is cheaper away from mainstream narratives.
1: Yeah, I mean that's the interesting thing. I mean, it's not just in Kenya and Africa. All over the world, uh, young people are not buying newspapers and magazines. Uh, Shiko, I mean, don't you think that's rather dangerous just to depend on uh, social media for news and proper analysis? Because the, the traditional media still counts when it comes to analysis, news and verification. You know That's why we have mm. a problem with social media.
2: I don't think so, Desmond, because we've seen our mainstream media getting most of its news from social media. If it's not being spoken about on Twitter, then it does not make it to to, to the mainstream media. So I feel that it's an opportunity rather than a risk. And I think for us is to devise ways like the elephant uh, and and platforms like SEM that then give factual and verifiable information so that we are able to then give content to the online audience that is factually verifiable and to kill the misinformation that is there. Because I think um, the biggest threat we've had with social media will be misinformation and disinformation. During uh, the Kenyan election, uh, the just concluded elections, we saw even mainstream media peddling the same. So the safety lies in our hands in creating spaces that have verifiable information and factual information
1: that then can counter the misinformation and disinformation that is there on the spaces. So Joe, there there really is is a need for media literacy among ordinary Kenyans and only citizens around the world generally. It's very important for people to understand what the media is all about and to decipher the information they get, don't you think?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think there is, there's always an opportunity for media literacy, not just in Kenya, but all over the world. Yes. Uh, but, but I think the, the, the conversation around media literacy has to go beyond uh, perhaps what to say civil society conversation, because the fundamental ideas of you know, the fourth estate, if you trace it, its its roots historically, really tracing, I mean, if you're quoting the philosopher Eugen Habermas talking about the construction yes. of the public sphere, which now introduces the idea of the fourth mm-hmm. estate in a democracy. I think, and, and this is of course in, in continental Europe where the bourgeois, European Enlightenment man is having conversations in the salons. So I think there's a space for uh, media literacy linking up with uh, particularly tertiary institutions, uh, universities, colleges, uh, of course, even in, in our case, even perhaps even a, a secondary education institutions, such that because a, a lot of how we decipher content is based on especially uh, tertiary institutions, how we understand ourselves, how we understand the world and, and how we live within this context as well. So on one hand, we can talk about media literacy and have workshops and you know, trainings and programs, which I think is important. But I think we, we, we should not uh, forget the fundamental idea of media literacy as a fourth estate is really mm-hmm. a space for engaging tertiary institutions, universities, colleges, and uh, university programs in terms of uh, how do we understand our politics? For example, if we had uh, more, more universities are churning out their academic research around, uh, for instance, how, how is you know, ethnicity in Africa, ethnicity in Kenya, if more people could get that information, uh, uh, voters were able to, to understand when during elections, when we say Kenyans are, vo- are, are voting along tribal lines, we to understand the politics behind that, uh, the economics behind that. But without that missing, without that engaging, robust engagement of stationary universities, media literacy lacks legs. Lacks legs, and in a sense, it becomes it becomes an echo chamber where it lacks the legs. It lacks the legs and the philosophical core to really, really create a robust uh, media ecosystem.
1: Yeah, Shiko. I mean, do you engage uh, the young people, travellers, uh, youth uh, in terms of media literacy? I mean, do they actually understand? what they're getting from social media. And do they actually read political, economic, and development stories, or is it just gossip about film stars and musicians?
2: So, yes, we do. Currently, there's actually a session ongoing um, on digital advocacy and digital literacy. Um, We think this is um, a very important role, and especially uh, a duty to the citizens to make sure that the information they share can be verifiable. Uh, We make it our priority to make sure that the audience we engage is able to access information and is able to verify information before sharing. Um, I think it's important for, I think, also stakeholders to come in together and do this. Um, Like Joa said, this is not something that one organization can do or satisfy. But this is uh, something that calls for multiple stakeholders to sit down and figure out how do we make this information um, accessible, but at the same time, relatable to the audience. Not only young people are able to read the good English we publish in books, um, the good English we publish in toolkits, but if broken down, because uh, we are believers that young people are not homogeneous and they're different and working in different spaces, So understanding how to break down the information to suit different audience that you're engaging, to suit different young people that you're engaging every day is uh, a key priority to us. And also being able to engage them depending on the spaces that they they are working with. So I think, yes, it's a priority to us. And digital literacy is something that, as an organization, we believe in and believe that it should be something that is enhanced enough.
1: Uh, yes, Joe, in fact, I mean, since you uh, published Infant, which uh, looks at uh, African issues, you see the problem with uh, social media generally, like you said, the disinformation and the misinformation. And these are the things people seem to take in quite easily. Even though you have a counter argument which will state the case, they don't listen to that. They just want to hear what they want to hear. And negativity about the government or their society
3: how, how do you change that mindset? It's a good question Desmond So, so I think and I like how you have begun So you, I mean with the fake news industry you have uh, you know you have malinformation, disinformation and misinformation. So you f- I, I find it's easier for audiences to, to to look at particularly when it's when it's misinformation but when it comes to malinformation especially which, which is formed in a cultural context, it really now uh, requires, uh, other stakeholders to actually realize we, you have a fundamental, not really flaw, but you have a fundamental logic within the public sphere that needs to be to be checked. So we, which and, and I think this influences now how uh, journalism has to take shape in in Africa in particular. Uh, I know I, I accused the press by the late Philip Cheng how he wrote about you no know, journalists need to know not just the know how but the know why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and unless journalists begin to now, uh, this is now especially for training journalists to, to really know the know-why of how to package news such that you're, you're, there are there, 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 there barriers, there, there are cognitive barriers uh, based on our, our realities that, that, will, that will influence a reader to, to say, this is true, this is false. But un- unless journalists know this, uh, you, you're facing cognitive barriers. So the know-why is very important for journalists in particular. We to say, okay, for instance, like another example, as I conclude, uh, in the elephant, we have a section called reflections. So this yes. is uh, the personal essays. We do this very intentionally because we are organized for a public, a public sphere. Claude talks about that is, you know, a post-colonial public that that but breeds double consciousness. The only true thing, truth, is if uh, is first and foremost an emotion. That's the only thing that can act, can, can be captured. Uh, our governments lie every day, uh, organizations lie every day, uh, other stakeholders lie to us every day. So we have to start building our journalistic culture from what are people feeling, then how then remove them from their feeling to so, say, okay, this is what you're feeling, but this, this is why you're feeling the way you're feeling. And so it has to move beyond just uh, telling the news, but first articulating what people are feeling. And after that, he's giving them background history and context to their emotions, such that we able to package them. We able to now uh, tell them this is how you're feeling, and this is how you need to is actually to break those cognitive biases, such that now news is is able to be able, able to understand it uh, fundamentally.
1: Exactly, uh, Joe. Most fundamental thing about how people uh, accept information, it depends on the mood. One day you might be happy, and this is something you find with it. The next day you're not happy. The same thing, and you're upset. So, so I mean, as a need really for language, to be more graded so that uh, you don't journalists don't stir, not just journalists, people on social media don't stir up trouble in society. Uh, how 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 do you achieve that? Exactly, there are always pressures of people in terms of where they feel and the way they think. So, language is very very important to ensure that. Uh, don't state where you chaos, just like what happened in Sierra Leone where wrong information was sent on social media. There was a riot, 30 people were killed and uh, five policemen were, were killed too,
3: mm. just because of uh, misinformation on social media. This, this, so, this threat is still there. Precisely. I completely agree with what you're saying around, I think there's, I think there's caution, this caution that journalists now need to take because uh, I think journalists really need to understand that they're operating in a very different normative framework from yes. what the press in the West operates from. So, uh, in any kind of news that any media outlet produces, needs to realise that there are people who would benefit from it, people <laughs> who benefit against it, and people who would not care at all. Mm-hmm. So, knowing that information, I think then it's important to say, okay, this is how we move. How then do we package information knowing? Uh, how different stakeholders will operate. so I think there's a lot of it boils down to how we train our journalists
1: yeah.
3: how uh, many of our journalists are not are not trained in the, in the liberal arts and social sciences so they're not able to articulate the human condition in, in a proper kind of way. And especially now since we have a plethora of media platforms which are a digital bust I think we now need to go back and say listen a core challenge that we are facing is uh, we're not training our journalists well.
1: Chico in terms of tribalist youth, which of course is to bring all of them together, uh, young Kenyans together. That's one thing. You're actually uh, trying to bring some sort of unity within uh, Kenya itself. But it should be Africa wide in the sense that they, are they actually also told about what's going on in other African countries? Did they know what's going on in other African countries. When I was growing up, we were all pan-Africanists. We knew what was going on next to east west north and south i mean but i think when i go to africa people don't seem to understand what's going on on their own continent they know more about what's going on in europe america beyonce and all the others but what's going on mm-hmm. in the continent so, so how do you do you counter that and make sure that there's more unity of purpose among kenyans and young africans in general
2: so unfortunately like you've said most young people don't even know their history, live alone, whatever is happening in other countries. Yes. So yes. if you don't understand what is happening in our own homes, how do we understand what is happening in Uganda and other places? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think most of these serious things that people should be focusing on and reading about and wanting to be very aware about yes. have been reduced to memes and gifs online. Yes. So anything that happens is something we can laugh about. We saw Museveni's son and the things he was doing online Yes, as Kenyans on Twitter, we reduced that to a joke and we reduced it to a whole two days of it's Kenyans versus Ugandans. Mm -hmm. Um, It's unfortunate, though. And I think information is key. Unfortunately, we've not found a way of breaking down this information for so many young people to be able to consume it. Young people don't want to read long books anymore. Unless they are fictional or romantic books, then they're not reading them. I know. So none of us want to revisit the set books we read in school because according to us, they were boring. But this is what Africa is. In a nutshell, whatever is happening in different parts of Africa is very well spoken in so many uh, literature books we read in school. Yes. So I look at it and I think for us is to break down this information using infographics, using animations, um, using puppetry, podcast another thing good things young people want to listen to if it means then taking a story of what is happening in rwanda and coming down here and releasing it to a tiktok video then i yes. think that is what it would take to inform our citizenry because these people spend more time on social media platforms creating music, creating dance, creating content, but not content that is really informing them about the historical perspective of what Africa is going through, or even the economic uh, sabotage that Africa is putting itself through. So Mm. it is really, um, it is a tough time and it's a place where we have a tool that is the digital media. We've not explored even 50% of it and how much it can change our lives, but the 20% or 15% that we've explored of the digital use has been things that are not really helpful or impactful uh, to most of us as young people. Mm -hmm. I agree uh, there's a lot to be done. I agree that um, there's a lot of information that needs to be disseminated to people. And there's a lot of knowledge that needs to be impacted on people. But this can only be done if we stop doing the thing, the same things we're doing, or uh, we were doing it 50 years ago yes. uh, during this time. It also means we need to understand that there's a very big generational gap. We have three generations to it. We have the elder generations, we have the millennials and now the Gen Z. The millennials yes. are disenfranchised, the they still don't even understand their history. And we are assuming that the generation Z need to come in and understand what is supposed to happen. So yeah. we need to zero in this gap and this is through uh by use of information revisiting back again our history but at the same time learning how to educate these kids in the language they understand because they will not understand the big books we write they will not understand the complicated articles we write they will understand if you go down to their level if you use the platforms they are using if you use something because if I see a cartoon, everybody will talk about a cartoon that was on delineation the and they never even bought a newspaper. Yes. But no one will talk about an article that Joe probably wrote that is really impacting their lives directly. So it is a weird space that we are in that we all need to figure out, but it calls for a lot of innovation and a lot of creativity when approaching it.
1: Joe, I mean, uh, Shiko mentioned uh, Museveni's son, and um, what wrote on twitter but you see again as a journalist because i've been talking to other people you should have dug deeper about uh, what he meant Because i mean i think there was more to it than just that don't you think because i mean uh, uh, absolutely problem in, in in rwanda or the drc uh absolutely. so they're
3: absolutely. trying to
1: sort out the argument <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, I completely agree just just a couple yes. of things one before i, I, I respond to that uh, I mean, I agree with Shiko that we need to, uh, I would say we need other, other, other forms of storytelling, right? So using yes. cartoons, TikTok, uh, other forms of storytelling. Uh, ho- however, something I'd like to dispel is the idea that young people don't want to read. Well, in mm-hmm. fact, our seven years of uh, working at the Elephant, uh, this, is, this is far from the truth that uh, the numbers that we have recorded uh, have been incredibly shocking and high. And I think the reason why young people, for instance, would read uh, uh, maybe a reflection about uh, the angst of a young man and wouldn't read maybe a story in the Daily Nation is because of two things. One, they, they connect with it, but then two, there's a level of trust our media industry, not just in Kenya, but in Africa broadly, and and I would say even the world currently is a lie. I mean, it's really people just don't trust mainstream media. There's a fundamental mistrust of mainstream media. And I think even moving forward, because at at the core of the industry, the media industry is trust. That is the reason why I'm going to buy this, because I, I trust what you're saying. Not just that you've gone through the usual electoral process of fact-checking, but that I trust you as, as a media platform. So I think if we can meet digital platforms wanting to grow their trust, but you know, trust size that will get more people reading even long stuff. But then two, I think again, it goes again to the how we understand the cognitive biases, such that a, a young person who uh, is a border, border rider uh, will want information that he or she can help him or her yeah. make decisions for where they are. So I yeah. think a part of the problem, and one of the thing is that, again, our mainstream media has been fairly uh, driven in, in the, the, the old metropoles. So it's yeah. Nairobi driven, in this case of Kenya, in Sierra Leone, it's Freetown, you know, the capital cities. Yes. So these guys are telling the narrative of, the, of everybody else. Yes. But with the digital media has done something which has devolved and decentralized this. And I think what's happening is that now journalists now need to really pay attention because I think this goes again to this a cognitive, Blocks and biases that we need to break and understand that. uh in, in Akuru, Shiko will want a story that can help her relate to one of really lived experiences. She wants to relate to the story, but then also uh, stories that can also help her make decisions within public life that can help her and her family. Uh, moving, moving on the second question uh, around the the Mohosi, the Mohosi and. Yes. Uh, I think it's more fundamental, maybe I don't think it's about this, from maybe different from this interview, but I think is a couple of things are happening within Kenya. One, and East Africa broadly. One, Kenyan capital is expanding aggressively, and it's expanding to, I mean, we're seeing Safari is in Ethiopia, we saw equities in Ethiopia, Rwanda now, and increasingly the, the price of Africa, which has always been, Congo is now, is now prime for extraction of resources and mm-hmm. and what we're seeing is a coming together of our east african elites uh, not just in kenya but across the region are coming together almost it's a, it's a beginning of a negotiation process of how they can not just stabilize the space but solidify consolidate, uh, their, consolidate their power together so uh, one is to understand what uh, what's happening in uganda one in the context of almost every Leaving office, but trying to prop up his son to take power from him. But then, secondly, uh, within the context of regional politics, has become much more uh, intricate and much more, uh, not useful, but much more important because yes. of the, the regional players within uh, the, the Congo factor. Uh, between the resources, I mean 80% of lithium which is used on our phones will come from a uh, cobalt which is in Congo. We have lithium as well, uh, you have the forest, you have the water, water of the Great Lakes. So we have to first look yeah. at we need to look at yeah. the politics within that context, right? So what we are seeing with this Muhuzi and so one internally is just because of the internal, the succession question, Museveni succession question. And of course he wants his son to take over from him. But then regionally we begin to see uh, the African community and uh, regional players beca- becoming more and more important as we begin to consolidate. Uh, so we have now start seeing not just Kenya, but the whole East African region as one large consolidated landmass. And everybody's trying to articulate and fight for power and resources.
1: So Shika, what uh, Joe just explained, uh, are these things explained in the basic manner to your members, Uh, you know, so that, I mean, they would have understood where uh, Museveni Song was coming from within the tribe. I mean, it it down also African unity and African cohesion, you know, so, I mean, if he's making such statements, then you have to explain to them the reason why and the way forward.
2: Uh, Unfortunately, no, and this is information. And like uh, has said, because it started by saying it quite well, most of the news out here is informed by the capital. Um, What is happening in Nairobi, the assumption is that it's what is happening across Kenya. No, it's not. Um, The information Nairobi people have is not the information that if you're out there beyond Nairobi, uh, the young people there have, the accessibility to this information also is not equal. So these are some of the things that we need to align by the time we're talking about that. We talk about these Muhuzi, Museveni, handover of power, so many things. There's so many stories around that. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of us can say it's factual. And that's the point. Yeah. So just like Joy is saying, there's a troop of people who are uh, justifying that Museveni doesn't want to give power to the son but the wife, and they have their own reasons to why they believe that. And that is why the sun has tantrums through and through on social media. So this is not information that most young people have. And that is why I keep emphasizing that information needs to come in in a way that it's understandable. We must stop assuming that if we write uh, good stories in English then every young person can understand. And an example is one. Yes, I understand that young people read, but what do they read? And a majority of them are online and reading compare a good article that is talking about youth, what apathy, and how disenfranchised youth are with a blog that is talking about how Verasidika deflated her behind. The numbers are totally different. The shares are totally different. So Mm. there's a language that young people understand that we've not really figured yet in a way that we reduce our conversations to what they understand we understand we have to set standards. We understand we have to set, um, uh, to kind of set standards for, uh, for our spaces. I, I spend hours reading articles on the elephant. Why? Because they impact my work. But in my circle of the young people I face every day and I serve every day, I would better it that not more than five of them would click and sit and read. Because they want quick things that will sell when they share in WhatsApp pages the, that will sell if they share on their Facebook. So maybe it calls on us. And like Joe says, we need to find creative ways of telling these stories and ways that young people will want to buy into and sell the idea. And also believe in the, the mantra of each one teach one. If I read something, then I'm able to teach someone else and show them the importance of actually uh, having verifiable information. During election again, uh, we had, I think, media forecasts in Kenya doing verifying the information and everything. Yeah. Very few young people clicked on that profile. Very few yeah. young people shared their article there or, or, or whatever tweet they were making for verification. Why? Because emotions. Second, because we want to be the first ones to publish. We want to get followers. It's all about clout and being the person who shares the news out here. So yeah. it's really unfortunate, but that's the reality that we are facing every day.
1: But, but, but Joe, then, I mean, as uh, Shiko is saying, do you then have a journalist on your staff who are actually from the uh, current generation who, who can plug in with the thinking of their own uh, peer group?
3: Uh, I mean, <laughs> maybe not Gen Z, because now Gen Z are now the, the youth, 18 mm-hmm. to 24. I mean, the, the significant staff at are the elephant millennials. I'm a millennial and articulating issues for, for that cluster. I mean, I, I think it's important to say that. Uh, of course also have correspondent writers from across the region who are not based in Nairobi trying to articulate issue I think we need to come also to understand the limitations of the pen you know that, that writing writing doesn't cause a revolution that content doesn't cause a revolution but I think mm-hmm. that there needs to be a, a more different multi-throned stakeholder engagement saying listen, that there's a, there's a part this has to play uh, but uh, but there's a, there's a different part that other things can do for instance uh if youth, for instance, look at uh, Siddiqua and what has happened in terms of the, she, she claimed that she deflated her you know, private parcel that she can, you know, and then the all this clam and all these articles. At prime office, we can, we can, we can dismiss that and you and can dismiss that and say, the youth are engaging in shallow hollowness, but that's the everyday politics. For them, Siddiqua uh, is, is symbolizing someone who didn't come from the elite establishment Somebody who didn't, uh, who has used other means of success outside of elite structures, education, dynastic wealth, etc. And she's doing something with her life. I mean, the question is not an ethical question here. The question is a question of epistemological question that within this post colonial context, knowing. Can be within, if you apply a Eurocentric ethical sense, knowing can be very unethical. But for them, that's what they connect with. And until we're able to now move, Mm -hmm. as I said earlier, the journalists, as Filippo Cheng said in his book, I Accuse the Press, until journalists can move from just articulating not just the technical know how, but also understanding the know why, how fundamental the societies actually work and operate. Omenshi media, for instance, is an elite infrastructure. So it's a conversation of Nairobi elites within the Nairobi political class. That's the infrastructure. Uh, digital media has done something with blogs and if you see able to articulate other, other things, uh, but until you're able to articulate, and, and so it's really a question of, it's not a question of even the newsroom, it's a question of our journalists know their society fundamentally. Yes. So when they're writing, they're able to, to see this and not say, okay, uh, Veresedica's story is a bad story because it's not ethical. But the question is that why is it selling? Or why, do, why is the youth an, uh, engaging with that? It's because of who Dika represents within our political and social infrastructure. So articulating that within now, within maybe you know bringing out the philosophical and journalistic ideas within that space and saying this is actually what it's saying. I think is what is lacking
0: within many of our newsrooms. You are listening to Talking Africa on the ALC Pan-African Radio. Stay tuned.
1: Welcome back. My guests are Shiko Kihika from Traveler's Youth, which was established in 2016 to promote peaceful coexistence among young Kenyans, and Joe Kabuti of The Elephant, a digital publication on African issues based in Kenya. Talking about uh, the, the center of the media in, in Africa, but it's also the same in, in America. It's the Washington media they talk about. In the UK, it's the Whitehall media. It's, it's everywhere. I mean, that's what happens with, uh, as journalists, you know that there's a hierarchy of news. It's mm. always those who are the top who will get all the publicity, you know. So, I mean, it has been the same for a very, very long time. So uh, Shiko, how, how do you see that? Because I know, I mean, I'll presidents, or prime ministers or, or politicians before you, you step down <laughs> to, to, to uh, someone below the, 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 the ladder. So, so how, how do you think that can change,
2: Shiko? No, I think a shift is happening. Um, and I think Joe has really mentioned it quite clearly. A shift is happening because digital platforms are offering an unbiased approach to this. Mm -hmm. They're offering a place where even that person with nothing can be able to express what they feel, can be able to tell their story without the limitation of it will get the media eye or not. Um, Like I mentioned before, yes, mainstream media, of course, look at the who's and who's who will make the news uh, and of course give them clicks and give them audience. But this system is shifting because how many young people actually sit today to watch the news? How many young people sit today to read the newspapers? So when we look at the numbers versus what it was, then mainstream media is actually losing uh, who it used to be. And we're getting to a point where most young people are shifting towards the digital platforms. What does this mean? That the media needs to catch up with what is happening. Realize that there is a sociopolitical construct that is being deconstructed by young people every day. That there's something they believed in that that is being done away with by young people. Uh, If you ask someone what was on Gafla today, they will tell you what they saw, probably Mm -hmm. one story or two. But ask them what the delineation had to date uh, on their their papers. Almost no one knows because we left the newspapers for the older generation. Um, And I think we are also moving towards getting the digital newspapers than even the physical ones. I work in an office where we have around 10 young people, all of them download newspapers on their phones. If you buy a newspaper there, no one will open it. So I think it's just a space that young people are in that is really deconstructing a lot of things. It is a good thing according to me because we are opening up uh, spaces for human stories, spaces for stories that will never make it to the mainstream media and stories that need to get out there. We have seen social media mobi- uh, mobilizing resources or crowdsourcing for people to go seek medical attention. We've yes. seen social media calling out politicians yes. um, and telling stories that media will never have covered because of the basis of who owns our media. You know, uh, we've seen social media coming out strongly to call out people who give misinformation, uh, misinformation about certain countries. So this is a platform that we cannot really ignore. It is coming up quite fast. It is growing every day and it's also uh, revolutionizing uh, the spaces that we are in. Joe mentioned something very powerful that uh, the pen might not cause a revolution, but I believe the pen can cause a revolution because the pen can spark conversations that can cause a revolt. So I think it's about time we see how we connect the pen to the actual people who will spark these conversations and then spark change as it was, yeah.
1: That's very interesting actually. So Joe, uh, you know the building British initiative whereby uh, Kenyatta and Odinga shook hands, and everyone thought that well, this was a positive move forward for a country that has always been so divided. Right. But then the whole, the whole thing uh, collapsed, of course, it went through the course. But would you say that uh, the pressure for, for, for change
3: came from uh, social media rather than from the traditional media? Uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, so, I mean uh, so, uh, so I think a bit of historical background is yes. uh, one of the important things, and I think it's Nanjala uh, Nyabola says in a book, uh, Digital Democracy and Analog Politics, mm. is that one of the powerful things that social media and digital, so, I like using the internet broadly, not, not just social media, because social media just uh, puts it on Facebook, Twitter, etc. But the internet broadly has done is yeah. that in, the internet has also provided spaces where People are forming different politically, Mm other than traditional spaces. So where you are formed politically in a couple of, it was very rigid and and very trajected. So religiously, you'd think this way, your political idiosyncrasies, or this way, very ethnic lines, uh, you know, economically, capitalism, etc. I think one of the things the internet has done, it applied for opportunities for different spaces. Uh, one of the things that Nanjala writes in her book is like how in the 2010s, I had a great opportunity for women uh, Shikokika being part of that space where they were able to articulate a new kind of politics, a new kind of uh, political imaginary for themselves within this space. So I think because of that is that the political establishment were not aware of the changing conditions of yes. the political terrain that they were operating in, so where previously the handshake could be like, okay, this is the the two communities that have fought for the last sixty years have come together now, but there's a whole bunch of younger generations. Yes, they have still been politicized ethnically, but they have other different buckets and nuances that they're now embracing. So for instance, Shiko, um, she's a Kikuyu, but she looks like she's a feminist. She's an urbanite. She also say mm-hmm. now she is an akuru urbanite, you know, to be specific. Yeah. And she's saying, uh, she says, yeah, I want the Nairobi one, but it's just to be, a, you know, so there are all these things that now, so it's almost thinking like, you know, like how... Uh, sales and marketing, how before it was a very very easy product where the product was just three things, where the guy lives, uh, who, if they're married or not, but the products become much more complex, where there are now new variables to the product. So I think digital media just showed how the resistance to BBI came from digital media. Uh, Music groups like Saudi, so there was a tweet they put like BBI is a no goes on, based from one of their hit songs. And how that appealed to very many uh, Kenya, particularly young Kenyans, because they were like, "Yeah, we don't want this kind of politics; we want a different kind of politics." And uh, of course, for it, it was not killed on social media; so it was killed by the courts. But I think, yeah, yeah, of course. But yes. but the ground they offered that to happen was actually created by uh, the internet, digital media platforms like the Elephant. We published a plethora of articles, uh, many interviews. I interviewed Shikokika on the same. Just there, there was a lot of the swell up. And that swell up, in fact, was the swell up that the current president used to, be, to get into power. Because in his politics, he realized, oh, no, no, Kenya is no longer the same place that it was. And I think the old guard realized that they, they were still playing. They, the best way to use use marketing terms. They knew our product was simple. The product is ethnic. Perhaps the man, possibly. And, you know, and I don't know. Those two things. So the man told the women we're voting this way. And since the two communities have come together, we're going this way. But I think uh, President Ruto, because of being in the communities longer, understood that there's a, a swell up, there's a shift within how politics is shaping up. So him organising his politics differently, is able to capture the new zeitgeist of what's actually happening. I don't think without without the internet and particular social media, that zeitgeist could have available to formed organically and been expressed to Kenya's policy. I think it's a shift of how the the public fear now. I mean, as uh, media scholars say you know, young child, better in particular how the emerging new public spheres are shaping how our new terrain of politics is, is, is changing
1: well okay yes uh, Shiko this is the problem but I mean the, the BBI really was aimed at improving governance and constitutional processes which would have helped everyone in the country why were I'm sure
2: young was people it?
1: opposed to it? Was is it? It, is it is it because <laughs> they, don't, they don't understand the history of Kenyan politics?
2: No. BPI was set for political reasons and to serve certain people in power. And I think I was among the few young people who were like, no, we are not going the BPI way, not now. Mm -hmm. We are not ready, we are not even prepared. We have an amazing constitution that we've not even implemented half of it. And I think I was also, like just said, we did a lot. I think most of us created that time to do a lot of Uh, Giving information, sending information out there, and making sure that young people have information enough of what BBI is and uh, what it speaks to. Um, I do not believe BBI was set to um, empower anyone or make anyone's lives better. It was supposed to create positions. And unfortunately, we are seeing some of the things that BBI spoke about Mm -hmm. with the current government. We are seeing them uh, bringing in uh, weird. Uh, PSs, or rather CSs, with no portfolio, yes, which really beats the logic of why we were fighting BBI. But this also, I think the fall of BBI for me, restored faith uh, yes. to, uh, to so many young people. Restored faith that we can still trust in our judiciary. We saw the the, uh, the 10 presidents uh, branding the judiciary, the activism judiciary which is a good thing. What is wrong with us having activist judges? What is wrong with us having pro-people judges? So for me, it's, um, we saw the way social media set the stage for that. We saw the conversations. Unfortunately, the current president was sharp enough to get to, to literally uh, sit down, pick that and run with it. Uh, because we've seen the way he, uh, he played his PR. Uh, we've seen the way He, like Joa said, I sit and I say his campaign was informed by two things. Um, Restore hope, and, and I think he understood that most people were really hopeless and did not look forward to anything. And that is where we saw him going around and doing all this signing of charters and publicizing them on social media. Mainstream media had given him a blackout, but he managed to get his people from social media. He managed to still push his agenda on social media. Mm-hmm. I think this then speaks to how mainstream media need to look at its power, versus what power social media is having on the people and who are the majority that they should be focusing on at this time.
1: Yes. Uh, Joe, I mean, I mean, is the elephant, will you say that the elephant is mainstream or is it uh, on, on, the, on, on the other side?
3: I think, I think I would say it's a mainstream of the periphery. <laughs>
1: yeah,
3: <mainstream.
1: laughs> yeah, because you still carry out proper journalistic processes mm. and that's sort of thing. Yeah, don't but, you?
3: But we still, yes, we do. So I think I was a mainstream of the periphery. Mm. Uh, so I think the mainstream is still, I mean, it's a big, I mean, they have such a huge infrastructure built over years. The national medias of this world have a huge infrastructure, have, have tons of resources. Mm-hmm. Mm Such that, uh, so so, I mean, you said mention of the periphery, but I think again, also, I think the conversation we also have to uh, study the works of some of the the contemporary media studies scholars, uh, people like Mm -hmm. Yonchai Benkler, who they're talking about uh, uh, mediated, uh, interconnected uh, public sphere, such that Mm -hmm. because of what the digital has done things are no longer inside signals like mainstream. Mm-hmm. And a good example of what you said earlier, how mainstream are getting information from social media. And sometimes social media go to mainstream to get a story. I think there's also a space for beginning to understand the normative our normative frames have changed. So that yeah. if you don't understand that normative frames have changed, we'll be trying to critique either use or abuse of something within the old frames, but actually not realizing that an interconnected public sphere is much more nuanced, much more complicated. Uh, it's flat, but at the same time still very hierarchical within it, but it mm-hmm. looks flat because of now all of a sudden you have all, uh, all these different stakeholders having a conversation, but within it, the hierarchy is need to break. And until we be able to, in a sense, uh, embrace that complexity and the nuance, miss the point. And I feel like all the conversation we're talking about right now, talking about mainstream, uh, vis-a-vis uh, digital media is missing the point that now yeah. their the interconnectivity has broken all the barriers but has created new hierarchies.
1: Yes. Shiko, uh, are you confident that the, uh, the digital medias in, in Kenya will now uh, serve young Kenyans, the tribalist youth a lot better?
2: I am. Um, I am more worried about the community standards set by digital media. Um, I think that is that when you talk about digital rights and digital freedoms, I do not believe the community standards set by these platforms really speak to African needs or speak to African way of working. And I think that is something maybe uh, People working in this space need to come together and ask themselves: How do we sit down with Meta? How do we sit down with Twitter? Uh, how do we sit down with TikTok and ask them how what informs their community standards? Because we've seen several page uh, here and there. We've seen Facebook just last week taking away people's accounts and doing yeah. away with people's followers. That has been a norm for people on Twitter. Like it's normal for you to wake up and you don't have a hundred followers. Um, but what does this speak to? At what point do these platforms consult stakeholders? How do they come up with their community standards? What informs their community standards? Is this a threat to our digital freedom? Is this a threat to our free speech? Because if today you went on Facebook and posted something that is happening on the uh, on the other side of the world, maybe the US, and probably said something uh, that Facebook deems um goes against the community standards, that boat that controls that account will take down your account or put you in some yeah. Facebook jail for for a month or so. So this kind of curtails the voices of the people. It kind of curtails the freedom of the people and why social media is social media. Because I probably think they should be so quick to then block politicians the same way they are quick to block other people. Because yeah. they're the people who spread most hate than anyone else and they have Quite uh, an influence over people. So I think it's really critical and important to start having a conversation about the community standards, how they're informed, and how the community, the African community specifically, is involved in this process. Uh, last time I checked, is that Meta's community standards are developed in London. And my question is how many of the people that you engage with really give you the perspective of an African activist? An African small business person, an African um, political leader, youth leader. At what point are you getting these views? And just to get to understand, how does the African media work, and how do Africans communicate? And then, yeah. how well do you understand the language they use?
1: Yeah. Yeah, but one final question to uh, Joe:
2: mm-hmm.
1: there has to be a responsibility. What would you say about the uh, Somali government banning uh, Al-Shabaab from uh, using social media and from getting the oxygen of publicity from the media? How how do you weigh those things? Because really, Al-Shabaab is causing a lot of havoc. They cannot be allowed to do what they're doing or saying. And the journalists in Somalia who complained, one of them was arrested. Al-Shabaab is not uh, a state player. It's a non-state actor who's
3: causing uh, havoc. Yeah, so I mean, it's tricky. One, I, uh, we understand that, you know, as much as all uh, governments lie uh, fundamentally, and then two, as governments rule, you know, as they control the means of violence, we need to really be cautious how they control it. That yeah. said, I think it's Jürgen Habermas who said that uh, uh, sometimes to bring tolerance, you must control the intolerant. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, with holding those two tensions, I think the decision lies somewhere in between. Knowing first that all governments lie and to the monopoly of violence, we have to be cautious as citizens. But on the other hand, we we also have to know that uh, in, in pursuit of tolerance, sometimes you have to you have to manage the intolerant. Mm -hmm. So, and if you hold that tension correctly, I think somewhere in between there is the decision for uh, banning Al-Shabaab, who we know uses social media as a platform for recruitment, uh, for recruitment, they were using social media for articulating their their ideological positions. So I think, so in in that sense, we can say that, that ethical, that policy decision was, it was necessary. But I think coming to Kenya, I think we have to be very mindful uh, because again, this is my context, so I, I know this better. We have to be very careful of government interference with uh, our freedom of expression. We, we, we have seen the last 24 years of Moy's rule, before that, uh, 15 years of Jomo Kenyatta, mm-hmm. and we saw, that also, and also, and also saw the last 10 years of Kenyatta's rule uh, trying to muzzle our voices uh, is, is very dangerous for our democracy. So, for us, I think we must be vigilant. Uh, we have to keep them power to account and, and we, when we have to see fight for the public sphere that uh, is able to articulate our terms and expectations
1: yes yeah, so Shiko. finally i mean how do you yourself see the somali government uh, uh banning shabab from social media and suppressing publication of its activities I mean, do you support that
2: no um
1: no <laughs> if, and i say like,
2: well, you no know because um
1: even
2: though Al-Shabaab is a terrorist organization. But is, is this, like Joe says, governments lie. Uh, why is it that every terrorism attack is pinned on Al-Shabaab? Who is Al-Shabaab? Isn't this a narrative? Isn't this something that has been kept going for some reason? I believe, um, I'm not so diplomatic like Joe is, but... <laughs> <laughs> I just don't believe in governments holding all the power in terms of Muslim voices, in terms of limiting uh, freedoms and rights in the name of um, stopping attacks and everything. Because even yes. if they do not post on social media, they are still attacking. So how mm-hmm. are we finding the balance? Is this mm-hmm. just a narrative to be seen that you're working? And who actually finances Al-Shabaab? So maybe it's a bigger conversation and it's a very political conversation because, Most of these gangs, most of these violent groups, they're financed by political class. So maybe the question is finding out who finances them and how is the Mm. financer then blocking them from having their free speech while at it. So maybe it's a bigger conversation and it's a very political conversation. Um, Maybe it's to harmonize and try to find a way, but I just don't believe in our governments. We've seen African governments being the most weird governments you can ever face. Today, one is a humanitarian, tomorrow they are the oppressors. So you, you just never know which side it lies.
1: Thank you very much, Shiko Kihika from Triveless Youth, which was established in 2016 to promote peaceful coexistence among young Kenyans. And Joe Kabuti of Elephant, a digital publication on African issues
0: based in Kenya. Thank you for listening to Talking Africa and ALC Pan-African Radio. For these and other programs, please visit our website at alcpanafricanradio.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at African Leadership Center. For feedback on these and other programs, please send an email to info at africanradio.com.